Hello and welcome to the first edition of The Hedgehog and the Fox of 2019. If you listened to the programme last year, welcome back. And if you're dipping your toe in for the first time, I hope you'll stick around. And maybe explore some of the 50 programmes in the back catalogue, which range from Ronald Hutton on the history of witchcraft to Edith Grossman on the pleasures and challenges of translation. The Hedgehog and the Fox tries to tackle questions large and small, from a wide variety of subjects, but its centre of gravity is human cultures, cultural history broadly defined, and humans' place in the wider natural world. So let's kick off 2019 with some big questions. Does history matter? If so, why? And is it, along with other forms of knowledge, facing unprecedented challenges to the very notion of expertise? Fortunately, we have high-powered help in tackling these questions. Lynn Hunt, Distinguished Research Professor in the History Faculty of UCLA. Well, I think there's a general issue about expertise that is going on in the entire Western world. This is a, a broader question than just why history is worth doing, which is what it is about the democratization of education and politics that has actually paradoxically created this distrust of expertise. Lynn published a short, highly readable book last year called History, Why It Matters, a spirited defence of the value of history in an age when it's particularly beset with controversy, how to teach it, how to commemorate it, how to revise it, and who gets to decide. Lynn writes, What do we learn from the past? For me, it is above all respect for those who came before us. Her book shows that respect is not uncritical, it's interrogative, as though the past can only speak if we make the effort to tune in to its frequencies. Lynn did her doctorate at Stanford and has spent much of her career at UCLA. She's best known as a historian of the French Revolution, but her interests are wide-ranging, from the history of human rights, religion and pornography, to the writing of history itself. When I spoke to Lynn on the phone from California recently, I began by asking her, was it love at first sight when she first encountered history as a child? Well, one of the first things I remember uh, growing up is that the first book I remember reading was A History of the Panama Canal, which my father gave to me because my sister and I were born in Panama when my parents were living there during World War II, and we only came back to the United States in 1948. So I don't didn't remember Panama, but obviously the canal was an important part of the family story because my mother was in the army during the war and was sent to Panama to to the canal zone. So that was the first book I remember. So I do remember being interested in history books, but what I was really struck by, I think, was the fact that my grandfather was an immigrant from Ukraine. My grandmother had grown up in the United States, but in a German-speaking family. So I was always interested in the connection between Europe and the United States, especially yeah. historical connection. Right. The sort of the sort of how does your family story fit into the bigger picture? What 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 led them to come here, and what was it like where they were, and and, and things like that? I imagine. Yes. Although I must confess, I think I think when you're you're young, those are not the questions you ask. You sort of take it for granted. In my mind, I think it was a more general sort of, what does this mean that 
people come from other places and they're here. What does it mean for me to be an American? How lucky am I that I get to be here, whereas other people had to move because they were in unhappy circumstances? My grandfather told us stories about when he first came over, he, he went to Canada because his brother had gone to Canada and how they were always cold and that he would sleep with a potato under his pillow so it wouldn't freeze because he was going to eat it the next day. So I was, it was more that I was struck by the fact that we were incredibly fortunate in the post-war period. And of course, I was, as a result, interested in the war. And I also read many of the first history books I read were like the memoirs of Dwight D. Eisenhower, believe it or not. So I guess I guess with a family background, German-speaking grandparents who'd been displaced in the events of the, the 30s and 40s, you might have gravitated towards becoming a, a German historian or a historian of the Second World War, but you consciously or, or not eschewed that path. Well, indeed, I, I did think I would become a German historian. I studied German in high school. I was originally a German major at university, and I switched to history, and I had every intention of studying the rise to power of the Nazis, like many people of my generation. Uh, when I went to graduate school, I went to graduate school explicitly in German history to work with a very prominent German historian, Gordon Craig, at Stanford University. But when I got there, my other big interest was the French Revolution, and frankly, the fellow who taught the French Revolution was much younger and more willing to spend time talking to me, I switched. I, it just seemed to me clear that as a woman starting out in history, there was no way I would make it unless I got some kind of emotional encouragement while I was in my graduate program. And was there something in the the era of the times, as it were, this was the 1960s, and, and there was social revolution happening specifically in France. Was that Did that also play into it, that sense of Absolutely. understanding the present through the past? Absolutely. I went to graduate school starting in 1967. I had been in my first four years of university at a small college where we were very much affected by the civil rights movement and the anti-war movement. But when I got to Stanford in California in 1967, it was a real hotbed of resistance to the draft, of resistance to the war. It was also the beginning of women's liberation, the beginning of gay liberation. There were so many things going on that it was impossible not to think about revolution. So it was, I was either going to study the bad revolution of the Nazis or the good revolution, in my mind, right. of the French. Mm. And I had never been to Europe. And I yeah. grew up in St. Paul, Minnesota, which was the home of F. Scott Fitzgerald. So I had read all the Fitzgerald novels. I'd read all the novels of the American novelists of the 1920s in France. And so for me, Paris was a kind of intellectual mecca in my mind. And in 68, of course, there were the uprisings in many places in the world, but especially in Paris. So it was impossible not to be interested in the revolutionary origins of what we were then experiencing. And do you remember, Lynn, at what point you decided you wanted to make history a career? It was not just something you were going to study and, and then go out into the wider world. You actually wanted to make it a career because you, you're very clear in the book that when you were starting out, the profession wasn't welcoming to women. You know, the, the, the members of the faculty who were, who were female were, were in a tiny minority. Yes, but again, I think one of the things about being young is that things are the way they are. It wasn't until I went to university 
that I began to see, as did many others of my contemporaries, that things didn't have to be the way they were. So it was a very, in my case, I think a quite slow coming to realization that there was even a problem. Of course, I knew there were no women professors, but it just, that's the way it was. I had one woman professor when I was in, at Carleton College. There was one woman lecturer when I was at Stanford. She happened to be in 18th century French history, so that was incredibly helpful to me. But I, I didn't feel, it's not that I actually felt disadvantaged, because it wasn't clear to me what the alternative might be until much, much later. So I, I wasn't, I was, I was angry about the war, I was angry about civil rights, I was angry about the way the United States was, but I didn't, frankly, draw much of a direct connection to my own situation, because I felt fortunate. I had money, I had a fellowship to go to graduate school, I had great classmates, I had great classes. So becoming a historian as a career was also something, it wasn't actually in the forefront of my mind. Always in the forefront of my mind was that I wanted to be a teacher. And the issue was, would I be a teacher of high school? Would I be a teacher in a small college? Would I be a teacher in a research university? That depended on what my chances were. What, what was it that was, that was sort of driving you to be a teacher? Was it sort of awareness of some of the bigger questions that, that you raise in the book about the very important role that history has in in shaping citizens, in making us critical participants in democracy? Were, were those ideas already um, very much present when you were um, starting out? I think what got me most interested in teaching was, in my own experience, the discovery that everything you learned, and it wasn't actually just history, because I was a big reader of novels as well, that everything you learned gave you a different kind of perspective on your own existence, and that the educational process had this incredible ability to open people's minds, to think critically about their own situation in all kinds of ways, psychologically, historically, politically, economically, and that education, to me, in my own experience, was unbelievably powerful in getting you outside the perspective of your own family, your own community, your, even your own nation, to be able to think in broader terms. So to me, it was an, an incredibly liberating force, and that's what I wanted to be in touch with. So jumping ahead to much more recent times, when you were invited to write the volume on history for the, the Polity series, did you... Did you say yes without hesitation? Did you instantly jump at the chance? I actually did say yes without hesitation, but that, I'm afraid, is a characterological <laughs> defect. And that is that I, I just, it's just some part of me that I don't spend a lot of time making decisions. It's, I usually go with my gut feeling, I should do this, not do this, whether it's buying a car, buying a house, deciding where I'm going to take a job. Really, I have in all those instances, never spent time saying to myself, here are the pluses, here are the minuses. I really do sort of go by how, how it just sort of strikes me at that moment. So I had no plans for doing such a volume. And this was before the election of Donald Trump that I was asked to do it, but it just seemed like a good time to write something that was not defensive about the values of studying history, but that rather made the strong positive case. Because I thought that was surrounded 
by many people in the university, in in the humanities, and even the social sciences, who were so concerned about whether funding authorities or parents of students would find the subjects worthwhile, that they were feeling defensive. And I felt it was important to get away from the defensive and understand and make more comprehensible the incredible virtues of this kind of liberal arts education. And do you feel, you, you, you said you didn't want to be defensive, but we are in the Trumpian moment. Do you, and I was struck by the fact that the very first subhead in the book is, is lying. And I'd, I just wanted to ask you, do you think we're in a particularly pressureful moment? For I mean, in this country, there's a great deal of animosity directed towards expertise of any kind, whether it's scientific or, or economic or, or indeed any kind of academic discipline. And we can see parallels, I think, between our, our two countries there. So do you, do you feel that the values that the academy and that historians espouse are suffering a particular pressure in our present times? Yes and no. That is, I think there is a general issue about, I, you, you put it very well, I think there's a general issue about expertise that is going on in the entire Western world. Not, certainly not just the United States and not just the UK. It's, it's, a, it's a general problem. This is, this is a, a broader question than just why history is worth doing. I, and I'm, it's a question I'm actually very interested in, which is, what it is about the democratization of education and politics that has actually paradoxically created this distrust of expertise. I actually think it's a kind of unintended consequence of a lot more people going to university and people being able to participate in the political process. And there's a way in which, as the saying goes, familiarity breeds contempt, that people have a harder time seeing those people who are supposedly know something who are who are supposed to govern them as being really different from them because in fact they aren't this is a fundamental problem of democracy that i think we're now experiencing in a particularly acute form that if a lot of people go to university well then being a professor doesn't really stand out in the same way as it did when 1% of the population went to university and had, how much of a role do you think the internet and then social media have played? Because in a, in a way, we're living in a, a golden age for availability of information. You, know, you can interrogate all sorts of archives and, and texts from the comfort of your own keyboard. And you can participate in all sorts of debates and be in touch with people on the other side of the world. And yet, that has, that has had profound effects on the reliability, the authority of, of documents and evidence, hasn't it? I mean, you mentioned Holocaust denial as just one, as one example, one sort of particularly repugnant example of that, that in the book. Right. So, I, I, again, I think this is, I, I do think that's a huge issue, social media, the internet, but I would call that, in a sense, the problem of the democratization of access to information. So when only the war correspondent was in a position to tell you what was happening, where would you find out what was happening? You would have to go to the newspaper or the radio or the television. Now there's the sense that anybody can find out, which is of course not true actually. There's a sense that there are, so, there are all these different sources of information and this has led to an enormous amount of confusion about does anyone have authority or are just 
is everything just opinion? And that, that gets us back to the question of historical truth, which is that it's so difficult to understand the proposition that because something is provisionally true doesn't mean it's not true. That it's just, yes. that it's just anybody's opinion matters. So you, we need to sort of get back to the basics of how do we defend a proposition? Evidence, documentation, argumentation, an open forum of ideas. We need to get back to that because I think there's a, an enormous amount of confusion that is, however, I would say, paradoxically created by something that is good, which is much greater access. I mean, I, th- I thought there was a parallel as I was reading the book. I thought there was a parallel between climate science and climate change denial in that the provisional nature of scientific conclusions, the fact that they're being revised and worked on and there is debate, which is intellectually, you know, within the academy, is a, is a sign of strength. But then when you take that out into the wider public sphere, if you want to criticise climate science, then you can pick, you know, you can look for discrepancies and you can, you can cherry pick your facts. And it seemed to me that something very similar operates in history where you can, you can, you know, someone of ill will can apply a similar kind of policy and challenging history and saying, well, if it's not settled, then it's open to my interpretation or it's open to challenge. Exactly. Exactly. So that's, and that is the classic problem that if it's not absolutely true, it can't be true at all. And that is that that is what what is extremely important to explain how that works. This is democratization, including of history, accompanied the sort of decline of absolute rulers and the absolute authority of religious figures. And it's been very difficult to move away from the notion that if it's not absolutely true, guaranteed by scripture, or by an authority who is obviously superior to you, then how can you possibly know anything is true? But of course you can. The whole point is that we did develop all kinds of great procedures for getting at this sense of the provisional truth. And that's been one of the great accomplishments of science and also of history and other fields of knowledge. But it's very hard. It, it, we need to explain how that works. There's a lot of public debate about what bodies of knowledge students and, and you know, high school students and, and younger should be taught, and also the slant that's put on those bodies of knowledge. But do you think there's enough emphasis put on the skills that should be taught? I mean, that, I mean there's, that, that doesn't enter into the public debate so much, but from a lot of what you're saying and from the book itself, one of the things I took was, you know, it's a particular mindset, it's a particular way of approaching evidence and argument and coherence and cogency. Do you think those, those things actually should be played up rather more than they, should, than they are at the moment? Well, there are, there are two things, at least, at, at issue. There's the issue of skills, but there's also the issue of knowledge. That is, the, the sort of what kinds of bases of knowledge do we have to have? So I, I think both things are required. Skills are something that can be taught, it seems to me, in a, in a wide variety of ways. And the skill of how to do historical study, I think, is an important one for everybody so they can understand what their own history is about. But there is also the transmission, if you will, of tradition. That is, there are certain things, I think, that any citizen in a nation needs to know about their own background. 
So it's, I think it's both things. It's skills, but it's also knowledge. And the, the argument often comes down to what are those things in the, the body of knowledge that, should, that a citizen should know? That is the, the huge argument right now is about how much national history students need to know, how much world history students need to know, speaking of history, for example. And in literature, the same thing. How much of the, of the canon of British literature do students need to know, including in the United States, or how much should they just be learning about whatever? You describe in the book what is a very positive movement, I think, away from fixation on national and sometimes nationalistic histories and focus on the, the nation state and its and institutions to a progressive broadening of the subjects which history, professional history, has concerned itself with in the last 30, 40 years, and how that has sort of filtered down all the way, you know, right into the, the school system. And that, that seems to be one of, the, one of the great positives that the book describes. It, I, I do believe that this broadening out of history has been very positive, but I also believe that there has to be I don't want to say balance because it implies that there's some kind of easy decision about how much of national history and how much of a broader history of the world is a good thing. I think both things have to happen. You have, there has, you have to have a sense of national belonging, but you also have to have a, a way of learning how to criticize that sense of national belonging because it's always changing. It's always going to change as the identity of nations do change over time. So the great thing about history, it has the capacity to do both things, to talk about what brings people together, but also about what we need to be critical about. Who's been left out? Why have voices been suppressed? How can we bring them into the story? As I was walking the dog this afternoon, I was thinking, how much of a part did British sense of national identity and belonging and feelings towards the European continent. I mean, obviously, this, is, this was just a hypothetical dog-walking question. I'm not asking you to answer it. But it's interesting to speculate the degree to which those national ideas and, and sometimes myths play into um, very practical political considerations that, that the British um, people and the British Parliament are currently grappling with, how we disentangle ourselves from, from the EU. Indeed. I mean, and this is, of course, a, an issue now on virtually every nation's agenda, even if they're not facing the specific issue of Brexit. All countries right now are, are under the pressure of confronting issues of immigration on the one hand, but also confronting issues of what kinds of relationships should we have with other countries? Should we, this is especially true in the case of the United States, which has had a certain posture in the post-World War II period, which is now under question. Should we go back to what used to be the U.S. posture before World War, the, the end of World War II, which was basically to avoid entanglements in other parts of the world. And then we became extremely entangled in other parts of the world. And the issue is, well, now what? Because neither one of those positions is probably viable. And how can you answer those questions unless you have an understanding of historically where we have been and what we have done? Now, the New York Times today um, had a headline along the lines of the, the, the increase in greenhouse gases and their consequences are, are rushing towards us at the speed of a, of a careering freight train. And 
this fixation on on nation states and national identity, of course, sucks up a great deal of of attention and debate. And there are very big questions which go far beyond national boundaries. And I was very encouraged, in a way, to see in the book that historians are beginning to think supranationally and embrace um, a whole range of of well, what you call questions relating to to whole Earth time. And I wondered if you could say a little bit about about what what some of those very recent perspectives are on humans' place on the Earth. Right. I think that the growing concern about climate change has forced even historians to, in a sense, rethink what their agenda should be for the future. And it now includes, this does not mean that all historians do this, but it now includes more attention to the history of the environment and the history of the globe as a physical being and not just in terms of political, diplomatic, economic, or even cultural developments, and and an issue about how to confront them as a world population means trying to think historically more in terms of, well, how has this happened in the past? What are the pathways towards thinking about the environment in different parts of the world? How can we bring them together? I don't mean that this is all just in the service of the issue of climate change. I don't mean that at all. But I think it's made historians, amongst others, much more aware of the fact that we might face issues as a whole population on the globe that we have never thought about in historical terms before. And we need to think about them historically in order to, to think about how, how this is going to affect our views of ourselves and how important our views of the environment actually are to the issues that we're going to be confronting in the future. And it seemed to me to point towards some quite fruitful areas of interdisciplinarity where historians might well be collaborating with environmental scientists or paleontologists or archaeologists or anthropologists or a whole host of other disciplines where there could be quite fruitful collaboration. Right, and this is, and this is so exciting, the idea that, that historians would now collaborate with fields that they never thought of collaborating with in the past. I think in part has been happening just because of changes in historical interests and changes in scientific possibilities. Take, for example, DNA has uh, combined with archaeology has opened up all kinds of new perspectives for studying immigration in the past, for example, because we're finding out much more now about who were the peoples who inhabited different parts of the world, where did they come from, things that have been issues for centuries we can now frame in, a, in more precise ways, even though there will be new information to change our views in the future. But the the question of the earth as a whole and as an environment, this raises all kinds of new, interesting collaborations. And I think that's incredibly exciting for historians to be thinking about because it means that, that history can, can be involved with disciplines in ways that we, a hundred years ago, would have not crossed anybody's mind. And do you think history as an institution, as an academic institution and discipline, is well equipped to embark on those new you know, there's new domains, because you raise two two dangers that, that you see in the, the present. Um, one is 
one is presentism. It's over-focus on, on the most recent history of, you know, the last 150, 200 years. And the other is over-specialization. And I can see specialization has to be part of the training of a historian. But are, are those two things which sort of militate against opening up those new vistas that, you, that you've just described? There clearly are dangers in both of these areas. No question about it. But there's a way in which the, the great, frankly, the great thing about history as a field to be in that I've always enormously appreciated is that nothing theoretically is off the table. There is, there is no approach or question that is impossible to pursue just because the discipline says it won't count. The, the discipline has become so open to new perspectives that it's not that anything goes, but anything that a good case can be made for is bound to arouse some interest and attention. So that's great. The, the over-specialization thing is, is a, a classic problem of modern knowledge production, which is you have to have the question be precise enough in order to find out something new, but the more and more limited the, the purview is, the less its relevance to other people is, which is the, one of the issues about expertise in our current world, and the, the harder it is to make connections between areas. So it's funny how this works. In history now, there's a kind of going back and forth. There's a kind of coming in and going out of the tide. That is, there is greater specialization on the one hand, but there's also been a move in the last 10 years that's quite noticeable of more interest in synthesis and more interest in bringing to all this elaborate knowledge to bear on big general questions. So there's been a, a huge outpouring of much more general work that is trying to benefit from all the specialized studies and explain in a, in a, to a much broader public, what does this add up to? So I think there's a way in which this, there's a kind of going back and forth. I, I think the same thing is actually true in the, the sciences. Take neuroscience, for example, which is the fastest growing field probably right now. There are huge numbers of researchers doing extremely precise work, but there are also quite a few figures trying to explain what does this mean? What are the questions we have answered? What are the questions we have not answered? How do we put this all together? So when you go into a bookstore and you see the, the, the popular history titles on display, do you, feel, do you feel sanguine about the discipline or do you sometimes feel, oh, it's, this, it's rehashing of the same, the same questions again and again, you know, the Second World War? and the, How do you sort of um, see that? Well, again, it's probably a characterological defect, but I, I, tend to be, <laughs> I tend to be the person who says, if it's got history in it, I'm for it because... There, there was a very, there's a long time during which professional history was identified with disdain for popular history writing, disdain even for history museums and heritage sites, that this was somehow watered down and not true history. I, I think that's disappearing as we recognize that it's actually great that people can be interested in history, even if it has to be through let's say, a film whose historical background is not necessarily entirely correct, or if it's through an extremely popular version of history that is an awful lot of rehash of what people already knew in the past. Sometimes these popular histories that we used to disdain, in fact, do benefit from the work that has been done and bring up a lot of 
information to the general public that they would not have known about otherwise. Tell me, what, what do you think makes a, a work of history stand the test of time? And should, should we even expect works of history to stand the test of time, given what we've been saying earlier about, you know, the additive nature of knowledge and revising the interpretation and new ways of framing questions? Nonetheless, some works of history clearly do stand the test of time. What, what do you think accounts for that? I think it's important to recognize that what really makes historical works stand the test of time is not... It's not necessarily their documentary base. I mean, it has to be the best possible documentary base that someone had at that time. But it's clearly, it's aesthetic qualities as well. It's literary qualities. When I think of the great works from the past, starting with the ancients going forward, it's always somebody who has an amazing sense of literary penetration and an ability to get you enthused about what is happening. And, you know, this is just this is just true. And I think this is something that professional historians kind of ignored for too long because they thought in the scientific model, which is a scientific paper is not an interesting literary device for the most part. And insofar as history wanted to professionalize, it tended to move in that direction. I think we now see that, again, we need to we need to to go back more to that literary side. There's both a literary side and a scientific side. There's a mixture of them depending on the person who's writing but the things that really grab people's attention and will continue to grab people's attention over the decades or the generations or the centuries will be somebody who has an amazing literary sense of how to tell the story. I saw you use in an article an interesting phrase which has stuck in my mind which goes beyond simply the the ability to tell a historical narrative. And the phrase was analytical panache. And I guess that's quite a rare quality to be able to not just bring some kind of narrative together, but actually to to do the sort of higher order thinking that that I suppose tells the reader why it matters and how to how to approach the narrative. Right, right, right. And even when people take issue with it, let's say as they do with Tocqueville on the French Revolution, they still can't get away from what he has tried to do there because he brings it together in such an amazing, kind of condensed and at the same time incredibly stimulating and provocative way. Let me ask you finally, I imagine this happens quite regularly, that a, that a student comes to you and says, I'm thinking about pursuing graduate work in history and I'm just trying to work out if it's the right thing for me to do. And how do you, how do you help them sort out in their head whether it's, whether it's something they should, they should throw themselves into? It's got to be something that they really cannot imagine their life without. I mean, that is, it's got to be something that they feel so enthusiastic about, so passionate about, that they're so interested in that the outcome is not the first thing on their minds. If the outcome, i.e. a job, is the first thing on their minds, may not be the best thing for them to do. I believe that anybody who's seriously passionate about history does find something that they really want to do in the way of a job at the end. But you can't get through the process um, because it's long and there are moments that are difficult and especially alienating and lonely. So you, if, you, if it's not something that's just part of you, then it's not worth doing. I was talking to Lynn Hunt about History, Why It Matters. It's published by Polity Press and is available in paperback and as an e-book. You can find out more about it on their website 
politybooks.com. If you've enjoyed this programme, do visit thehedgehogandthefox.com for other interviews in the series. You can subscribe to the programme wherever you get your podcasts, catch up on any interviews you've missed, and even leave a review. I'll be back again next week with another programme, so until then, thank you very much for listening, and goodbye.